Section 1 of Three Essays on Religion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leon Meyer. Three Essays on Religion by John Stuart Mill. Nature, Part 1. Nature, natural, and the group of words derived from them, or allied to them in etymology, have at all times filled a great place in the thoughts and taken a strong hold on the feelings of mankind. That they should have done so is not surprising, when we consider what the words, in their primitive and most obvious signification, represent. But it is unfortunate that a set of terms which play so great a part in moral and metaphysical speculation should have acquired many meanings different from the primary one, yet sufficiently allied to it to admit of confusion. The words have thus been entangled in so many foreign associations, mostly of a very powerful and tenacious character, that they have come to excite, and to be the symbols of, feelings which their original meaning will by no means justify, and which have made them one of the most copious sources of false taste, false philosophy, false morality, and even bad law. The most important application of the Socratic Elenchus, as exhibited and improved by Plato, consists in dissecting large abstractions of this description, fixing down to a precise definition the meaning which, as popularly used, they merely shadow forth, and questioning and testing the common maxims and opinions in which they bear a part. It is to be regretted that among the instructive specimens of this kind of investigation which Plato has left, and to which subsequent times have been so much indebted, for whatever intellectual clearness they have attained, he has not enriched posterity with such a dialogue. If the idea denoted by the word had been subjected to its searching analysis, and the popular commonplaces in which it figures had been submitted to the ordeal of his powerful dialectics, his successors probably would not have rushed, as they speedily did, into modes of thinking and reasoning, of which the fallacious use of that word formed the cornerstone, a kind of fallacy from which he was himself singularly free. According to the Platonic method, which is still the best type of such investigations, the first thing to be done with so vague a term is to ascertain precisely what it means. It is also a rule of the same method that the meaning of an abstraction is best sought for in the concrete, of a universal and the particular. Adopting this course with the word nature, the first question must be, what is meant by the nature of a particular object, as of fire, of water, or of some individual plant or animal? Evidently the ensemble or aggregate of its powers or properties, the modes in which it acts on other things, counting among those things the senses of the observer, and the modes in which other things act upon it, to which, in the case of a sentient being, must be added, its own capacities of feeling or being conscious. The nature of the thing means all this, means its entire capacity of exhibiting phenomena, and since the phenomena which a thing exhibits, however much they vary in different circumstances, are always the same in same circumstances, they admit of being described in general forms of words, which are called the laws of the thing's nature. Thus it is a law of the nature of water, that under the mean pressure of the atmosphere at the level of the sea, it boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit. As the nature of any given thing is the aggregate of its powers and properties, so nature, in the abstract, 
is the aggregate of the powers and properties of all things. Nature means the sum of all phenomena, together with the causes which produce them, including not only all that happens, but all that is capable of happening, the unused capabilities of causes being as much a part of the idea of nature as those which take effect. Since all phenomena which have been sufficiently examined are found to take place with regularity, each having certain fixed conditions, positive and negative, on the occurrence of which it invariably happens, mankind have been able to ascertain, either by direct observation or by reasoning processes grounded on it, the conditions of the occurrence of many phenomena, and the progress of science mainly consists in ascertaining those conditions. When discovered, they can be expressed in general propositions, which are called laws of the particular phenomenon, and also, more generally, laws of nature. Thus the truth that all material objects tend towards one another, with a force directly as their masses, and inversely as the square of their distance, is a law of nature. The proposition that air and food are necessary to animal life, if it be, as we have good reason to believe, true without exception, is also a law of nature, though the phenomenon of which it is the law is special, and not like gravitation, universal. Nature, then, in this its simplest acceptation, is a collective name for all facts, actual and possible, or, to speak more accurately, a name for the mode, partly known to us and partly unknown, in which all things take place. For the word suggests, not so much the multitudinous detail of the phenomenon, as the conception which might be formed of their manner of existence as a mental whole, by a mind possessing a complete knowledge of them to which conception it is the aim of science to raise itself, by successive steps of generalization from experience. Such, then, is a correct definition of the word nature. But this definition corresponds only to one of the senses of that ambiguous term. It is evidently inapplicable to some of the modes in which the word is familiarly employed. For example, it entirely conflicts with the common form of speech by which nature is opposed to art, and natural to artificial. For in the sense of the word nature, which has just been defined, and which is the true scientific sense, art is as much nature as anything else, and everything which is artificial is natural. Art has no independent powers of its own. Art is but the employment of the powers of nature for an end. Phenomena produced by human agency, no less than those which, as far as we are concerned, are spontaneous, depend on the properties of the elementary forces, or of the elementary substances and their compounds. The united powers of the whole human race could not create a new property of matter in general, or of any one of its species. We can only take advantage, for our purposes, of the properties which we find. A ship floats by the same laws of specific gravity and equilibrium as a tree uprooted by the wind and blown into the water. The corn which men raise for food grows and produces its grain by the same laws of vegetation by which the wild rose and the mountain strawberry bring forth their flowers and fruit. A house stands and holds together, by the natural properties, the weight and cohesion of the materials which compose it. A steam engine works by the natural expansive force of steam, exerting a pressure upon one part of a system of arrangements, which pressure, by the mechanical properties of the lever, is transferred from that to another part, where it raises the weight or removes the obstacle brought into connection with it. In these and all other artificial operations, the office of man is, as has often been remarked, a very limited one, 
it consists of moving things into certain places we move objects and by doing this bring some things into contact which are separate or separate others which are in contact and by this simple change of place natural forces previously dormant are called into action and produce the desired effect even the volition which designs the intelligence which contrives and the muscular force which executes these movements are themselves powers of nature it thus appears that we must recognize at least two principal meanings in the word nature in one sense it means all the powers existing in either the outer or the inner world and everything which takes place by means of those powers in another sense it means not everything which happens but only what takes place without the agency or without the voluntary and intentional agency of man this distinction is far from exhausting the ambiguities of the word but it is the key to most of those on which important consequences depend such then being the two principal senses of the word nature in which of these is it taken or is it taken in either when the word and its derivatives are used to convey ideas of commendation approval and even moral obligation it has conveyed such ideas in all ages that thulum secui was the fundamental principle of morals in many of the most admired schools of philosophy among the ancients especially in the declining period of the ancient intellect and thought it was the test to which all ethical doctrines were brought the stoics and the epicureans however irreconcilable in the rest of their systems agreed in holding themselves bound to prove that their respective maxims of conduct were the dictates of nature under their influence the roman jurists when attempting to systematize jurisprudence placed in the front of their exposition a certain use naturale qua natura as justinian declares in the institutes omnia animalia docuat and as the modern systematic writers not only on law but on moral philosophy have generally taken the roman jurists for their models treatises on the so-called law of nature have abounded and references to this law as a supreme rule and ultimate standard have pervaded literature the writers on international law have done more than any others to give currency to this style of ethical speculation inasmuch as having no positive law to write about and yet being anxious to invest the most approved opinions respecting international morality with as much as they could of the authority of law they endeavored to find such an authority in nature's imaginary code the christian theology during the period of its greatest ascendancy opposed some though not a complete hindrance to the modes of thought which erected nature into the criterion of morals inasmuch as according to the creed of most denominations of christians though assuredly not of christ man is by nature wicked but this very doctrine by the reaction which it provoked has made the deistical moralists almost unanimous in proclaiming the divinity of nature and setting up its fancied dictates as an authoritative rule of action a reference to that supposed standard is the predominant ingredient in the vein of thought and feeling which was opened by rousseau and which has infiltrated itself most widely into the modern mind not excepting that portion of it which calls itself christian the doctrines of christianity have in every age been largely accommodated to the philosophy which happened to be prevalent and the christianity of our day has borrowed a considerable part of its color and flavor from sentimental deism at the present time it cannot be said that nature or any other standard is applied as it was wont to be to deduce rules of action with juridical precision 
and with an attempt to make its application coextensive with all human agency. The people of this generation do not commonly apply principles with any such studious exactness, nor own such binding allegiance to any standard, but live in a kind of confusion of many standards, a condition not propitious to the formation of steady moral convictions, but convenient enough to those whose moral opinions sit lightly on them, since it gives them a much wider range of arguments for defending the doctrine of the moment. But though perhaps no one could now be found who, like the institutional writers of former times, adopts the so-called law of nature as the foundation of ethics, and endeavors consistently to reason from it, the word and its cognates must still be counted among those which carry great weight in moral argumentation. That any mode of thinking, feeling, or acting is according to nature, is usually accepted as a strong argument for its goodness. If it can be said with any plausibility that nature enjoins anything, the propriety of obeying the injunction is by most people considered to be made out, and conversely, the imputation of being contrary to nature is thought to bar the door against any pretension on the part of the thing so designated to be tolerated or excused. And the word unnatural has not ceased to be one of the most vituperative epithets in the language. Those who deal in these expressions may avoid making themselves responsible for any fundamental theorem respecting the standard of moral obligation, but they do not the less imply such a theorem, and one which must be the same in substance with that on which the more logical thinkers of a more laborious age grounded their systematic treatises on natural law. Is it necessary to recognize in these forms of speech another distinct meaning of the word nature? Or can they be connected, by any rational bond of union, with either of the two meanings already treated of? At first it may seem that we have no option but to admit another ambiguity in the term. All inquiries are either into what is, or into what ought to be, science and history belonging to the first division, art, morals, and politics to the second. But the two senses of the word nature, first pointed out, agree in referring only to what is. In the first meaning, nature is a collective name for everything which is. In the second, it is a name for everything which is of itself, without voluntary human intervention. But the employment of the word nature as a term of ethics seems to disclose a third meaning, in which nature does not stand for what is, but for what ought to be, or for the rule of standard of what ought to be. A little consideration, however, will show that this is not a case of ambiguity. There is not here a third sense of the word. Those who set up nature as a standard of action do not intend a merely verbal proposition. They do not mean that the standard, whatever it be, should be called nature. They think that they are giving some information as to what the standard of action really is. Those who say that we ought to act according to nature do not mean the mere identical proposition that we ought to do what we ought to do. They think that the word nature affords some external criterion of what we should do and if they lay down as a rule for what ought to be, a word which in its proper signification denotes what is, they do so because they have a notion, either clearly or confusedly, that what is constitutes the rule and standard of what ought to be. The examination of this notion is the object of the present essay. It is proposed to inquire into the truth of the doctrines which make nature a test of right and wrong, good and evil, or which in any mode or degree attach merit or approval to following, imitating, or obeying nature. To this inquiry, the foregoing discussion, respecting the meaning of terms, was an indispensable introduction. 
language is, as it were, the atmosphere of philosophical investigation, which must be made transparent before anything can be seen through it in the true figure and position. In the present case, it is necessary to guard against a further ambiguity, which, though abundantly obvious, sometimes misled even sagacious minds, and of which it is well to take distinct note before proceeding further. No word is more commonly associated with nature than law, and this last word has distinctly two meanings, in one of which it denotes some definite portion of what is, in the other of what ought to be. We speak of the law of gravitation, the three laws of notion, the law of definite proportions and chemical combination, the vital law of organized beings. All these are portions of what is. We also speak of the criminal law, the civil law, the law of honor, the law of veracity, the law of justice, all of which are portions of what ought to be, or of somebody's suppositions, feelings, or commands respecting what ought to be. The first kind of laws, such as the laws of motion and of gravitation, are neither more nor less than the observed uniformities in the occurrence of phenomena, partly uniformities of antecedents and sequence, partly of concomitants. These are what, in science, and even in ordinary parlance, are meant by laws of nature. Laws in the other sense are the laws of the land, the laws of nation, or moral laws, among which, as already noticed, is dragged in by jurists and publicists, something which they think proper to call the law of nature. Of the liability of these two meanings of the word to be confounded, there can be no better example than the first chapter of Montesquieu, where he remarks that the material world has its laws, the inferior animals have their laws, and man has his laws, and calls attention to the much greater strictness with which the first two sets of laws are observed than the last, as if it were an inconsistency and a paradox that things always are what they are, but men not always what they ought to be. A similar confusion of ideas pervades the writings of Mr. George Coombe, from whence it has overflowed into a large region of popular literature, and we are now continually reading injunctions to obey the physical laws of the universe, as being obligatory in the same sense and manner as the moral. The conception which the ethical use of the word nature implies, of a close relation if not absolute identity between what is and what ought to be, certainly derives part of its hold on the mind from the custom of designating what is by the expression laws of nature, while the same word law is also used, and even more familiarly and emphatically, to express what ought to be. End of Nature, Part 1